Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, I wanted to thank you for the following statistics I'm going to read out. Our podcast channels around the world, our episodes have been downloaded over 2 million times. And I believe that's a very conservative number because before we moved on to iTunes, we hosted our episodes on another platform and the downloads were not tracked at that point. In fact, if you look at countries like Singapore, India, France, Hungary, Belgium, even Canada, the UK, Australia, our channels on strategy and case interviews routinely rank within the top 10 for careers. And in fact, in some times of the year, around September, October, we usually jump to number one in many parts of the world. So thank you for making that possible. And because we have such a diverse audience all over the world who have allowed us the opportunity to build these channels and build firms consulting and the rest of the businesses, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to Marketing Saves the World, marketingsavestheworld.com or firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples, previews, and free episodes of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So as you know, FC Insiders is an elite level. It takes you some time to get to that level. And many people ask us for samples and previews and so on. So the only way... The only way to get those previews is to join the list on marketingsavestheworld.com or firmsconsulting.com. And in fact, we have two big offers coming up. As you know, Bill Madisoni's memoir and documentary was done by Firms Consulting. As far as we know, it is extremely rare for a former McKinsey and BCG partner to publish the memoir. So Bill Madisoni was Marvin Bauer's mentee. He became a partner in two years at McKinsey, and he developed McKinsey's leadership strategy, basically the strategy that allowed McKinsey to leapfrog over BCG and Bain by defining McKinsey by its leadership attributes versus its strategy attributes. Now, we're going to be launching a promotion soon, and if you've looked at our prices, you know we are pretty premium. However, we're going to go with very, very accessible pricing so that clients around the world, whether you live in India, Bangladesh, Vietnam, Canada, Mexico, and so on, you can buy this. The special pricing means we're going to price these items for, my guess, is below $20. You will get access to the book and the documentary for that price. And it's a one-self offer. It's not going to happen very often, and it's only available through this list. So go to marketingsavestheworld.com and firmsconsulting.com. Along with access to that special offer, you will also receive sample episodes of our insider content. For example, you could get a sample episode of Competitive Strategy with Kevin Coyne. Kevin Coyne is an ex-McKinsey partner, former worldwide head of strategy, and he had served something like over 25 CEOs on a personal level, on a one-to-one basis over his career. Kevin also has a program called How to Become a McKinsey Partner. It's the first time ever a McKinsey partner has gone on record talking about what is actually required to become a partner and you'll find it's very different from what you think is required. The 21-day programs, which are very, very popular. How to Develop Deep Insights, which I have put together, one of our most popular programs. The Electric Car Startup. You will get sample episodes of all of those programs and more if you sign up to this list. So, that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hello, Michael. Hello, Oda. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. I like speaking to you because you have a lot of energy and warmth in your voice. <laughs> Even yeah. if I was sad, you would make me happy, Oda. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Where are you? Are you in Algeria or? 
Morocco. Uh, right, right now I'm in Morocco, but I would be going to Algeria on on Wednesday. You don't have any family in Paris, do you? No. Thankfully that you are safe <laughs> and your family is safe. Thank you. Okay, so we're just going to have a discussion now, right? Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about your experiences and what you went through. It's going to be free-flowing. Uh, I've given you some points I want to raise, but honestly, it's going to go where the conversation goes, okay? Sure. Now, how do you want me to refer to you? Huda? Um, now, what I mean is that, um, do you want me to mention Morocco? Yeah, sure. I think it's it's relevant. I think it's relevant. I think you should be proud of your heritage, right? Yes. If you're not going to be proud of it, who's going to be proud of it? No, it's also mostly to help other people because uh, I think there is a, a very bad stereotype about Moroccans and that's why some people don't even bother to to consider themselves as potential candidates for 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 certain jobs. So I oh, think I it's relevant. Okay, so where should we start? Well, let's talk about the challenges you face being in Morocco. Let's start there, you know, trying to find these big roles with big consulting firms in Europe and so on. Do you want to start there? Mm -hmm. So um, you would like to know why I decided to, to look in Europe instead of Morocco? Well, maybe it's a different question. The first question is, so you're in Morocco. You know, you're not part of the network of consultants who are recruiting in Europe and Morocco. Yes. What are the, you know, that's one of the challenges you faced. What are the other challenges you faced in pursuing this path? I think it's uh, the fact of not being exposed to consultants means that I don't know what is expected from me. So the idea of not belonging is something that was a very big issue for me because mm -hmm. if I had known, for example, what consultants do on a daily basis, what are the typical engagements that they have, etc., then I would have eventually really is that it's something that just requires a lot of uh, um, intellectual effort, and mm -hmm. that there are a set of there is a set of values that uh, that goes beyond what I think is uh, the social norm where I come from. So I think that was the biggest issue for me because I didn't come from a background where consulting was the norm. It felt like this unattainable uh, job, and so imagine what uh, that this is something that people could do on a day-to-day -day basis if they were like me. And so you, when did you decide you want to go into consulting, and how did you first start that? I mean, was it difficult initially? Uh, yes, I actually n never considered consulting because, as I said, I thought I wouldn't fit. Mm -hmm. And then I started reading about it, and I realized that the value set is something that uh, um, is different from what I thought. Mm -hmm. Because when when you talk about Morocco and you talk about consulting, you think about it as this elitist job that is for specific people with a specific yes. background and that they all meet in the same places. This is the same <laughs> perception that we have for uh, certain jobs, not, mm. not, not law, yeah. but um, for example, um, um, notaries and, and such similar jobs like that. And so I thought that I wouldn't want to be part of such a, a, fan, uh, like a, such a professional uh, body that is uh, discriminatory mm. towards people like me. But eventually, as I started reading about it I, from other geographies, that is. I realized that this was just something where if you are good, it's a meritocracy. So nobody is going to judge you. It might be difficult to get in initially, but once you're in, it's what you're worth in, uh, in, a pro in professional terms that will weigh in and not your family background or who you know. So that was a bit of an encouragement. I wanted to give it a try because uh, I came across uh, lots of reading where I, I thought that the, the, the value behind it was really good. 
And so it was, it went beyond what I thought was elitist. And eventually, as I read about it from different, different regions, I realized that maybe my country is the exception. So uh, <laughs> I might have a shot by going somewhere else. So you picked Europe because you felt that it was too closed in Morocco for you? Yes, I knew that in Morocco I wouldn't even get a, a foot in the door. So let's air the elephant in the room, right? You are an African female. Does it make it difficult? Yes, of course. I am black, actually. And uh, um, ever since I, I, I finished high school, I've always been the only black person in whichever environment I go to. When I went to college, I was the only black person in college until my sister joined. Because oh my I went God, to... you're a pioneer. Yes. Uh, not really. I wasn't picked because of my race. It's just well, because I had. Is, is, is a complimentary term. It means you were the first. Yes, but um, <laughs> yes, I was. But the thing is, um, I always carried this weight with me, because when you look around, you never see people who are like you. It does not mean that that blacks are a minority in Morocco. That's the that's the main issue. Blacks are not a minority. They're just a minority when it comes to getting good jobs, to getting a good education, etc. So when you go to a nice place and you're black, people just assume that you're accompanying somebody. If you're driving a nice car, people assume you're the driver, not the owner, and things like that. So um, going to college and being the only black person, I, I somehow felt that it might be an issue. But at the time, it was just me being a student, so having good grades was, was good for me. And so this is how I managed to have a social network, etc., and interact with people. But then once I joined my job, it was again the same thing. I was in a building of 160 people. And then and again, the only black, person. black person. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's uh, something that I realized that uh, uh, was a bit, uh, a bit of an issue because if I wanted to go into something that I perceived as being elitist as a function, then maybe people would not want to put me up front because I don't have the, the right looks. I don't have the right family name. And people would always be surprised to see me and maybe would not treat me as a peer or not give me enough attention uh, when I need to get some information from them. So I already, in my mind, I knew that I wouldn't be able to, to go into some um, client-facing role. And uh, it's only after I started work on important projects that I realized that actually, yes, there is always that first impression. But if you work hard enough, then people just realize that, well, this person is hardworking and whatever I ask of them, they, they get it done. But there is always this burden of one, ha, always having that handicap of the very first impression and knowing that you will have to, um, to work harder than everybody else so that you are considered a peer, whereas some others will just breeze in and will always be given the benefit of doubt. You don't get as many chances as the others. Well, let's, let's just touch on that a little bit, right? So mm -hmm. as an African female in a country where you know, you're usually the only one in that network or in the business group, do you feel there are certain things that happen to you that people who are not African don't understand and they don't see that it's putting you down at times. Little yes. things that yes. people just don't understand. Do you want to talk about that? Uh, yes, I, I vividly remember one specific meeting. Now, I was um, one of the reasons why I was hired was that uh, I, I had very good English. Most mm -hmm. people in my country are mostly inclined to speak in French. Mm -hmm. And and I also am good at public speaking and mm -hmm. I can present very well. And so I was given a presentation at uh, to the general manager. And my manager at the time was also in the room, and it was a very important presentation, but because I was the only one fluent enough and mastering the topic, I got to present it, even if I was very 
junior. And I remember that I'm just going there and I'm being very comfortable. And this is the U U.S. Type, uh, type of presentation, so I'm, I'm being very casual, but mm -hmm. I'm presenting the facts. And then um, my manager, after the presentation, would, would just say, uh, I want to have a one-to-one -one with you. This is a coaching minute, so I just need to give you immediate feedback. He said, one, you were too laid back, uh, and this is unacceptable. Actually, now, after many years, I know that it it's, it's actually was the right way of presenting. But the second piece of feedback she gave me was not about the presentation style or anything. She said... I really don't like your hair. Why is it so frizzy? Wow. And and she said, you know that you're very lucky to be working with us because in other companies, I know that many people before meeting the general manager, they would actually straighten their hair. We have this process called brushing, which is basically getting a hair blowout. They would straighten their hair before going and meeting the general manager. How can you just do this presentation to the general manager with your hair looking like that? Um, that... That is something that I remember vividly. I will never forget it. And I actually, um, for for some time, I thought about it, and I was just straightening my hair. And then you one day, I just started straightening. Your hair. So, so basically, the the criticism forced you to change your behavior. Uh, actually, uh, it's not even my my, my behavior. I, I, I wasn't even wearing it natural. I actually I, I tried to slick it back, but there was some frizz still showing, and she didn't like that. And the thing that everybody else has relatively um, um, straighter hair, yeah. or those who don't have it would actually go straighten it and get a blowout. But it's very difficult for my hair texture to get a blowout. I'm actually burning my hair to do this. But I ended up doing it, and that was... I ended up doing it for a few months, and it was the, one of the saddest times of my life because I just felt like I was a fly on the wall because I couldn't even look like myself. And um, and then eventually, after a few months, I decided to cut off my hair and uh, start wearing it truly. And that's uh, ever since I started getting many, many remarks, and it's only been maybe about a year ago or so that people stopped making negative remarks about my hair and just uh, embracing it. So that's just a, a remarkable story because I felt that obviously the lady was out of line to comment on your ethnicity and your hair. I, I've heard about stories of this happening, but you don't really, you, you don't really, how do I put it? It's like almost an urban legend. You, you know these things happen, but you don't <laughs> really experience and then you experience something like that. And you change your behavior. It's not yes. enough. I was very junior at the time. So, so what happened? How did you fit in? Is it because of the quality of your work you eventually just got accepted? Actually, what happened is that I, um, because because I was I was good at my job, I I wasn't uh, working a lot with the with the local team. Mm -hmm. The regional team started appreciating my work. So at a given time, because I was helping uh, the regional teams, I started feeling more accepted by them. And so I actually most of the time would end up working very late at night. Mostly because uh, the regional teams were in the U.S. or in other mm -hmm. countries with the time delay. And so I was very happy to be the only one in my country that was up to work with them. And that's how I actually started getting more important assignments. Because uh, people locally did not really care how good I was. But the regional teams were uh, acknowledged my, my performance. And that's how I progressed. So basically, you got accepted in your home country because foreigners told the home country you were good. Yeah, that was the case for every assignment I took. That is unbelievable. So you're in the situation, a lot of difficulties because of the fact that you are not a minority, but you're a minority in the business class, right? Yes. And 
you're being treated pretty badly. I mean, how do you still have such big dreams to go into, you know, Bain and so how, how do you dream so big? Um, I actually always tell myself that uh, there will always be somebody that went through worse. Um, I actually, on my computer, I have a photo of, of a peasant uh, somewhere in a tribe and uh, who, who only had uh, some herds of sheep and they were taken away from him and he's very, very old. And I always have this picture with me and uh, I, it just reminds me that I'm still relatively young and I can still make a change because things will happen to me but I'm the only one responsible for how I react to them. I can't always change them but I get to choose how I react to them and keep positive because there are some other people who have no other choice like this man. He lost all his herd and he's almost 80 so he can't do anything much about it so it can always get worse. But that's quite interesting because I mean we're obviously based in Canada and the US and in the Canada and the US because we have whatever we want more or less you motivate yourself through motivational pictures, right? Mm. But what you have is the opposite. You <laughs> it can actually get a lot worse. I should be grateful no matter how bad it is. Yes. And it's just a different mindset. I think that you know one of the reasons I wanted to speak to you is that, as you know, in the United States, and not just the United States, in Europe, in most parts of the world, there's this huge debate about minority rights. Mm-hmm. And I don't think people understand how hard it is for minorities. The mm. kind of things you need to go through. It's pretty horrible. I mean, I, I actually take my head off to you because the first time I spoke <laughs> to you, I was thinking to myself, why is this lady so bubbly? Why is she so energetic? <laughs> why is she so happy all the time? So, I mean, that's one of the reasons I like you because no matter how bad I'm feeling, if I speak to you, you're always happy. But I just don't understand how you maintain that style, that demeanor, despite everything that's happening. And it's only later I realized how bad things were when you kind of gave me some clue. Mm. But do you have any tips for people on how to, you know, besides the photo, which maybe you should email to me so I can share it with people. Besides yeah. the photo, how do you keep such a positive attitude? It can't just be the photo. Um, I also have a tendency to to do a bit of uh, journaling. So my way of doing it is not in the dear journal. This is how I feel, etc. But um, there are always some. I have I've had issues not only with work, but also in my personal life, etc. And so the way I do it is that whenever I write in a journal, I try to picture. To, to capture the moment. So it is like a snapshot of all the issues that I have at the time and how I feel about them. And typically, there are some nice, especially like when, when I have many issues, I try to document them. And then I go back every now and then, after every, every two or three months, I go back to a, a very, very old entry in my journal and I just see how the issues that I had at the time are now either they look smaller or they, are, they have become obsolete, etc. So I keep telling myself that things might look very, very bad at the time, but there is always going to be something different. Things are going to change, etc. So maybe right now you, don't, you can't see the end of it, but eventually you will get there. So I, I try to remind myself that I have been in darker places over again for different reasons. And so I just tell myself that it's going to be over. You just have to push through. So you, you document the good and the bad stuff, right? Mostly the bad. <laughs> <laughs> because it's mostly bad stuff. Okay, yes. so, so, so you, you are a minority, treated pretty badly. And let's get on to some of the technical things here, right? Mm-hmm. One thing that impressed me is you have a very high business judgment. You intuitively get concepts. But you obviously don't have the technical training. Yes. Well, didn't is more the correct word, right? So... 
you're in a society that obviously is not open to you asking for help. Mm, yes. But then you come along and you ask for help. How do you make that transition? Was it hard to make that transition? You mean uh, when I reached out to you? Yeah, because, you know, I'm guessing that if you ask for help there and, you know, you're an African female, you're going to be made to feel kind of stupid at times. But it doesn't <laughs> stop you from asking for help. So how do you do that? Um, actually, um, when I reached out to you, I, I just wanted to have advice. Because that's the thing. I've never had a mentor or some or something like this. And uh, I had listened to dozens and dozens of podcasts. And so actually... Uh, you know, even my cat got used to your voice, <laughs> so, <laughs> like morning and night. And so eventually, I just uh, I, I tend to have quite a quite a good gut feeling. Mm -hmm. So I felt that even if, if you say no, I won't help you, then it's fine. But if you say yes, then you will do it one hundred and twenty percent. So I had nothing to lose actually. But did you? So despite all the things that are happening to you, ask for help. And then we go through the process. And how did you find it? Did you find it easy to learn all these concepts? Yes, it was very enjoyable because you never judged me. Well, I judged yeah. you positively. Well, yeah, I mean, but uh, see, here is the thing. Typically, whenever I would want to learn something, if I had asked anybody else, then they would seize every little opportunity just to make me re remember how not good I was, you know? They make and you feel small. I, yes. People enjoy, people thrive in this kind of, of, of situation. And uh, I, it's usually something that I'm kind of somehow used to, and usually I just uh, brush it off. Mm -hmm. But when it came to something that, is, that was that important to, to change my life, I just didn't want to just have somebody who's just going to enjoy like, telling me that, you know, you don't know this, you don't know this. Oh, my God, how can you be so uneducated and not know this? Do people and, actually tell you that? Did people tell you that? Yes. Nobody gives you free advice. They have to put wow. you down because they need to feel better. Okay, <laughs> That's how it works. <laughs> I can't believe someone actually tells you you're uneducated, you don't know this. I mean, good Lord. Yeah, is, I mean, oh. the notion of actually taking somebody's hand and just, uh, you know, uh, preparing uh, for, for the next person to come after you or just helping the other because there is enough space for anybody, everybody to be at the top is, does not exist. And actually one of the things that I have done after I, just after I finished, um, the training with you is that I took a mentee, so now I have my that's own. Nice. That's wonderful. I have my own. Hmm? That's wonderful. You're paying it forward. Yes, and he's very happy so far. That's very good. I'm very happy to hear that. I was going to come to that in, later about how you're paying it forward and how you're helping. That's that's amazing. I'm really happy. If you need any help with your mentee, just email me. Okay. Okay. I'll be more happy to provide stuff for you that you can use with him and so on. So so let's talk about it. So you were teaching, learning all these business skills. Yes. Did you have someone to work with, to practice with in Morocco? No. So you, you were completely reliant on firms consulting other clients to practice with? Is that what you're saying? Uh, well, actually, just you. So. <laughs> no, just me. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, you've told me that now because previously there have been too much pressure. <laughs> so so, so you're learning all these business concepts. Late at night, by the way, because after work, you know, time zone differences and so on. So... We do a session, I explain things to you. What happens when the session ends? How do you remember things? How do you keep things moving? Actually, um, I, I am a highly visual person. So mm -hmm. if you explain something well, uh, and I understand it right then, then I don't really need to, uh, to look it further. If I get it right, that's, that's my way of learning, actually, ever since I was a child. I have to understand everything to the painful detail, 
But once I understand it, I'm done. So that's how I understood it. Uh, so it was about uh, the way of explaining things. Now, if you had explained it in technical terms, I would probably just glaze over it. But the fact of using examples, etc., that's what helped me. So I would just always remember the example, and that's how I actually end up remembering the concept. So I don't really need to go over it again. I just need to picture it, and then that's it. So two things, Matt, here. One is obviously you being there, paying attention. The other one is making sure the concepts are explained in that easy-to-understand format. Easy f- for me, because I know that some other people learn a different way. Because I'm a visual person, um, I think you picked the, the way to, for my way of learning. Yeah, my strategy for you was very simple. I thought you don't have to know the technical terms as long as you understand the concept. It doesn't matter what language you use to explain it to me. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, once you told me that you were sitting in the middle of the sun and doing a session with me, what did you mean by that? <laughs> well, it's... <laughs> No, the thing is that I, I don't really have where, where to, to do this. So I actually had a corner that I had, and it was like my, my firm's consulting corner. So I would have my computer, I would have my notes, my journal, and that's where I would always sit. But I didn't have another spot to do it. So that's where, that's where I'm sitting right now, actually. <laughs> Hopefully there's no sun beating down on you at this point. No, no, it's night. <laughs> okay, so basically, you know, the biggest hurdle you had to face, I think, is not listening to all the negativity you were getting from everyone else. And just remaining focused. So we did all the sessions. You did very well, I thought. Very, very good grasp of concepts very quickly. And then you were interviewing. Why? So I know why you didn't want to go to Morocco because of the sort of closed way the countries run, right? Mm-hmm. So you picked Europe. How did mm-hmm. you pick the regions? Was it language? Did you just say, I pick French, let's go where they speak French? Actually, no, I wanted to pick English. Oh, okay. The assumption... The assumption, and this is something that is always surprising to most people, the assumption is that uh, because, of, because I'm from Morocco that I would be mostly speaking French, which is true for 99% of the people who would be applying. But my added value is that I speak English, and then I can think in English, but I also have very good French and Arabic. So I wanted to go to a place where I would primarily learn English because my experience so far is that whenever I go to a mostly French speaking uh, type of environment, that's where I feel the most um, because that would be hasty but uh, it's mostly uh, when I don't really feel at ease because it, it brings back that kind of environment where I am in already but I wanted to go to an environment that had a completely different language and hopefully something that is uh, more merit based so to me uh, going to a place where I would speak English was something that somehow um, into having a specific that I wanted to be in so just to recap, the line broke a little bit. You didn't want to go to a French-speaking place because it reminded you of Morocco, right? Yes, because Moroccan elite always wants to speak French. <laughs> really? I must brush up on my French when I get to Morocco. Yes, actually, if you go to a restaurant, they all a nice one, they will always speak to you in French, even if it's not the national language. Oh, really? I did not know that. Okay, yeah. so I mean, people forget that... Um, just a memory of a bad experience is not pleasant. So when you say that, oh, I didn't want to go to a French-speaking country because it reminded me of Morocco and the bad experience I had, people will think, oh, you know, Oda is just being difficult. But actually, that's the way humans make decisions, right? We all make decisions that way. We don't like to be reminded of bad experiences. Yes. So you wanted to go to an English-speaking place, but you didn't apply to London. Why not London? Um, actually, I, I even, um, my plan was that if I didn't get accepted in the European country where I went, I would apply to London next. So London was the backup plan? 
Yes, because actually when I first, when I started the program, I was I already had an interview lined up, and it was only a few weeks away. But I had no uh, no assurance that I would get it. So my plan B was that if I don't get it, then I would really have to work on my networking and and then get into an English speaking country. But because I had that opportunity to interview at a French speaking country. I, I just took it. And the good yeah. thing is that in all my interviews, everything was in English. So I was very, very happy. I suspect they didn't think your English was good. That's why they did your interviews in English. No, I told them. Actually, they, always would, start with, they would start with French. Yeah. And then I say, hi, my name is Hula. And they say, oh, you speak English. And then say, yeah. And, and then we continue. And then at the end, they always say, I'm actually surprised that uh, you speak English. Where did you learn that? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, so they're actually a surprise. But anyway, so English is very good, obviously. So why did you... Look, I mean, most people who... I wouldn't say you, you generally don't lack confidence, that's for sure. But most people who have had negativity a lot in their lives, they generally don't target all of the big firms. But you just went after the big three. Mm. You didn't... At no point did we talk about any of the other firms. Is that, was that your deliberate strategy? You said, this is it. This is my big shot. Let's just take it. Yes, I mean you have to be focused. If if I if I, I only have so much energy, I already had a full time job and I was doing some extra professional activities, it was important for me and there were other things going in my lab. So if I were to give all the leftover energy I had, I better had it focused on something that would matter because what if I go to something and then it's just halfway of what I wanted to do? If you're going to yeah. do something big, uh it's a leap of faith. You really have to go all in. Go big or go home, right? Yeah. So first interview, enjoyed it, didn't enjoy it, loved it, hated it? <laughs> uh, the first one, I did not enjoy it at all. It was with the, um, maybe I'm biased, but it was with a female consultant. She was fairly young, and I felt that it was overly scripted. It was a profitability. Even the discussion about her profile, my profile, it was overly scripted. I felt that she was going through uh, some list in her head, and it was very contrived, and uh, while I eventually um, ended up solving the case, I thought that the interaction overall was quite average. And um, actually, uh, I think that having such a bad first interview set the tone for the rest because then I thought, you know, this is very painful both for her and for me, so I might as well just make it fun for both of us. And so this is why the next interviews I was more relaxed. So the, what you're saying is the first interview, it wasn't a bad experience. You just felt that... It was very mechanical. She was yes. just focusing on the interview. She was a nice lady, but she just wanted to focus on the interview and get through it, right? Yes. And you wanted to go have a conversation and obviously talk about everything. Right? <laughs> Which is good. That is your strength and that ability to build a relationship. So the first interview, what is the gap between your first and your final round interview? I did the I did my first round two interviews the same uh, the same morning yeah. and then after a month I did the second and third round and that was four interviews total within the same day. Now let's talk about the final round interview where judging by your description I'm guessing you had a lot more fun this time. Yes, it was very enjoyable. So tell me why it was so enjoyable. What made it so amazing? Well, the the round 3 as a whole or just the very last one? I think let's talk about the whole one and then the whole of round three and then just that final interview. Okay. Um, the whole of round three was uh, because I was very confident. Mm -hmm. Now, here is the thing. 
uh, I knew how to do certain things in in round two, and even maybe before I had read a little a little things, but I didn't have the right attitude for it. So by round three, I had realized that whatever I do during that interview is going to be a reflection of what they will think I will be doing in front of a client. That's exactly the feedback that I got afterwards. And I was very relaxed, and I treated them as peers. I knew that I wasn't, but I just uh, I just uh, enjoyed the talking with them. So I wasn't just hunched on my papers and just trying to solve things. Matter of fact, in the very last interview, I didn't even use paper. We didn't even do a case. That is such good news. So it was, it was, really, it was really great, and especially that I wasn't intimidated. Mm -hmm. So, for example, for the very last one, it was with the strategy practice leader. Mm -hmm. And so at that time, I just had the... The video with the videos with Kevin Coin in my in my head, <laughs> and so I was just using these huge pictures, like I was drawing virtually on the table and all kinds of big gestures because I knew that this meant I was confident, and actually I was, and I was talking about things that mattered to me. I talked about extra professional activities. I talked about how I maintain my energy levels because all of them were just asking why are you so energetic? I mean, it's the, it's very late, etc. And uh, and that discussion. I felt that it was not only comfortable for me, but even for the person in front of me, because mm -hmm. from his body language, I could tell he really enjoyed it. And it was, all the interviews, actually, that I had were very short. All the interviews I had after I went through the training were quite short. Um, uh, I would think it would be an hour or so, but no, they were all between 30 and 40 minutes, and then I'm done, including the discussion. So, and that was something that was a bit of a relief for me, because I, I knew that we always would talk about the conceptual level and at some point they would say you don't even need to finish the computations let's just um, think about uh, solutions etc what you offer etc and every time I thought it felt great because I felt that I wasn't there like a student trying to solve something for their teacher we were just at a meeting and having a discussion so I liked that you're basically working That's together valued for my opinion yes and are you the only African female in that office from the visit, I was uh, yes. So once again, but obviously it's a much more friendly culture, right? So that helps. <laughs> you you talked about making it enjoyable for the partner, which is something no one thinks about, and it's something I always I probably told you to do that. You got to think about how the other person is feeling through the experience and make it fun for them, right? Mm -hmm. Do you think that made a big impact? Do you think that materially changed the way the session was going, the the cases? Yes. Actually, when I think about it now, in retrospect, because at the time I didn't think about it, but I think uh, that the second interview of round two, I think I was already hired because they didn't bother to do cases afterwards. So I think that the second interview in the second round, he enjoyed the interview so much, everybody was hearing us laughing because we, would, we were coming up with these very um, out-of-the-box ideas. We were talking about uh, how the meeting goes. And actually, after we ended the case, we were even discussing about how the, the meetings to announce the results went and the resistance, etc., etc. So I felt from the body language of the people that I interviewed with that they really enjoyed it. And I think it's one of the reasons why um, every time I went through an additional interview, I felt that I was already part of the team. And you kept this friendly communicative style throughout, right? The way yes. you speak to me. I mean, it's like I'm talking to an old friend that I've known for 10 years, right? Yes, actually, that's, uh, that's something that came up in the feedback over and over again. They said that I have this way of, of just being very 
but at the same time that whenever I need to, that I can get the information and command the attention that I need and that they feel that I can carry this, this attitude with the, with the client. Yeah, it's right. It's exactly what you said. Whenever we, as a partners anyway, whenever we interview people, we always think if I left you alone with a client, what would you do to that client? How would you react in front of the client? And I think you come across very well in that regard. So let's just step back a minute, right? When we were working together, I remember mm -hmm. near the end, I had to do a timeout with you to discuss things that were bothering you. Yes. And I remember at the time you were surprised I did it, but I thought it was yes. important. Now, I want to discuss two things here, right? Firstly, by this stage, this was near the end. I think it was very close before your interviews. Why mm -hmm. do you think you had these kind of personal things bothering you, even though you were doing so well at that stage? Why do you think these things were still bothering you? Um, I think they they were bothering me from the beginning, but the more I the more I I got uh, better um, from the technical side, the more I felt that if they were to to reject me, would and and I, I'm I'm not really sure, but as I got closer, I just felt that um, they had no reason to take me. They had no reason to take you, and no reason not to take you. No reason to take me. But you were doing so well. I mean, you were actually. But that stage you were doing very well. So you're doing well, but you still have these doubts, right? Yes. Uh, the issue was that I was thinking that maybe the uh, my background and my perce the perception that they had of me would probably not outweigh um, the technicality of how I, I go through the cases. That's the thing. I always thought maybe I'm not sophisticated enough. Maybe I cannot phrase my thoughts in an elegant way. And maybe they have already some stereotypes and that they won't tell me. So I was mostly worried about the things that I couldn't control. Or the things that they were not saying that they were thinking. Yes, mostly, exactly, yes. Things that they would be judging silently. So you were worried that, oh, what if they'd already see me and then they decide they don't want me, but they just go through the interviews for the sake of it, right? To be polite, yes. To be polite, because that does happen many times, right? Mm. And when we had a discussion, there's, you know, nothing major. In my opinion, there were kind of small things we had to discuss there about how you position yourself, why you're choosing this office, all easy things. And then, But I needed to hear it. You needed to hear it. And why is it so important to hear that? Because uh, because so far I've never had any any sort of echo. The, the things that I've always thinking I've always been thinking about these things, but I never had somebody to discuss it with. And you are in the best position to to tell me what a what a so, what a partner would be thinking. So positive without... reinforcement is actually very important. In my case, yes, because that, that was something... Actually, towards the end, I was really, really anxious about that. So. And the reason you felt this way is because you don't really have a role model, right? Yes. I mean, there's no one where you can look at and say, well, she did it, she did it, she did it, she looks like me, her hair is not straight, and, you know, she's <laughs> a partner. And the point I'm trying to make is that... It's very difficult to see things from your perspective because obviously I'm not an African female <laughs> and I do not want to kind of steamroll the really small things that are important to you that the rest of us don't really see and don't realize how important it is. For example, we talk about having role models, but when we say it in the West, it's, it's not as meaningful as someone like you who just doesn't have the role model. And because you don't have a role model, you don't even know the path can exist. It's like hacking your me, way through a forest. That, uh, yeah, up to me, to me, up to that day, never seen somebody like me there. 
So you're going to be the first, Oda. Yes. What advice would you give to a black female who is, maybe she's in, I don't know, Nigeria, maybe she's in Morocco, maybe she's in even the United States, no role models, and she wants to do big things. What advice would you give her? Mm, I would I would think that um, it might be difficult, but not having somebody who did it before does not mean that it's impossible because you could be that someone for somebody else. This is like the shortest sentence you've ever given me <laughs> since I've known you, Oda. Well, yeah, because the thing is that if you if you just prepare enough and if you try to push your case enough, then maybe you will get some no's, some people will reject you, but if you try 99 times, then maybe one of them will work. And it's it's about that. It's about not, not um, just saying that this is the last time I'm going to try. Just keep pushing. Because this is what I have done. I have pushed for many, many things through my life. And I think that right now I will be able to say to somebody else that it's possible to do it. But if I had stopped one try short, then and this wouldn't have been possible. And up to now, that office would not have a person like me in there. So don't quit when it's when you think that uh, you can't do it because you never know if it's if you're one step closer to that nobody else did. Yeah, you're right. You just have to keep on trying and create the opportunity, right? Create the opportunity, but not all not all have somebody to to do the same. Because you know, if you, if there is nobody else before you, you have to be the first one. Sometimes mm-hmm. you have to be the pioneer. Mm. You have to be the first one to arrive and deal with all of the wild animals and pacify the state and allow other people <laughs> to come in, basically. So you talked about giving back and, you know, mentoring others. Talk me mm. through what you were doing there. You know, how are you giving back? What are some of the challenges you were seeing? How can others do more of that? I think it's very important to give back because this is how you stay a grounded person. Now, if you want to get into consulting, then you know that it's mostly about giving back. Uh, I mean, you you start first with the right set of values, but then you know that at some point you will get in a comfortable situation and then uh, there are a lot of people that uh, need you to help them. The way I am giving back is by um, getting these. But it's something that I used to do even before joining this program. Mm-hmm. Now, what is the difference is that before I used to reach out to people who were from my amateur, from an underprivileged, and it's almost as though I, were, I was just giving them pep talk. You know, you can do it, I've done it, etc., etc. What has changed from at least I, from now, I only have one mentee since I started the program. I, that's the only one that I added. What has changed with this person is that I don't tell him you can do it, I believe in you, etc., etc. I'm actually be he needs to work on. Um, this is mostly in uh, with respect to um, how they approach their networking because it's something that is always very intimidating when you think you don't have, you don't stand a chance and you don't really have that organic network around you. So you need to build it from scratch. And also, uh, I would just sit with them, and when we was talking, I would comment about on how how they're talking, and then I would look at their resume. Something that I have seen you had mentioned is about having that aspirational resume. Mm-hmm. So I just talk with them. What what not in the very cliche. What do you see yourself in five mm-hmm. years? But mostly, write put it in writing, and let's talk about uh, what do you want to do and how to get there. And I I felt at least with that new mentee that I added that it really made a difference. 
and I have seen over a few weeks how he how how he is changing, and uh, I really like that. I think that it's something that is really great. I don't expect anything in return, but I did tell him one day that I expect him that once he becomes really very important executive, that he also would have mentees. And so I think that this is how you perpetuate this chain. You don't really have to always be in a transactional exchange because when you do this, when you see that you have the, the ability to help somebody and you see them thrive and change and just you see how their personality keeps starts showing up, I think it's great. What you're recommending is very clever. I remember that podcast where we put out where we said that you need to design the resume you want to have in two years and then work towards it, right? Is that the one you're referring mm-hmm. to? That's a good technique because it's something very simple and it's something very personal for someone. So they don't feel it's like extra work that's not going to help them. It's their life you're dealing with, their resume, right? Mm-hmm. So now when you move to Europe, right, are you going to continue with your mentoring programs in Morocco? Well, uh, my mentee right now is uh, he's, he's currently in Morocco, but he doesn't live in Morocco. Okay, so you, you, well, basically you will mentor whomever you think deserves it, right? Yes, and this is what I told him. I because one day we were we were talking, and then he said, "I really like, uh, I really appreciate, etc., etc." And then I said, "You know, I I really like you as a person, but I'm not mentoring you because I like you. I'm mentoring you because you have potential. And if you didn't have it, I wouldn't I wouldn't be your mentor." So, yeah, it's a very important rule. I always tell people that if someone tells you they are your friend, they can't be your mentor because your mentor, by definition, must be willing to give you tough feedback. Yes. And your friend is not going to give you tough feedback. He wants to go drinking with you or something at night, right? So he's going to tell you whatever you want to hear. Well, I'm not sure if you drink alcohol, but I'm just using it as a general example. Yeah. Okay, so I don't want to keep you too long, Oda. Anything else you want to add or anything you want to share before we wrap up? Mm, I think that uh, one very important thing is that before you even try to, to consider the program, you really need to familiarize yourself with the value system. Because I think that the, your value system is something that will always show through on a day-to-day mm-hmm. and people will see through you. And it's something that is very, very important in uh, defining you, your, your person outside of consulting or whichever uh, work you were going, you're going to do. But before even enrolling into, into this and before even considering a career in consulting, just make sure that you have the right value system. Nobody wants to say that uh, I'm not really virtuous or I don't have integrity, mm-hmm. but I'm talking more in terms of, of uh, uh, being okay with, the, with the having to deal with the difficult personalities, doing the hard right and things like that not winning all the time and also have a negative impact because it's not always about making life better. better. So um, I think that it's very important to be, to be okay with this and to know what to expect before going into it. So you're saying, just to understand you correctly, you're saying that don't, beca- don't try to be a management consultant for the money. Do it because you yes. want to have an impact, right? Yes. And I agree with you. I think a lot of people... I'd even argue that the majority of people who go into management consulting go there because it's prestigious. They know it'll pay a lot and, it'll know, and they know it'll set them up, but they don't really think about the client and having an impact and doing what's right. But you are arguing exactly what we say. It's about the value system first. You get that right and everything else will then flow in, right? Yes, because people trust you with their companies and with the lives and well-being of their families afterwards of the families of their employees. So you really have to be up for this uh, responsibility. Otherwise, you can make money elsewhere. Or you can end up destroying many lives, right? Yes. 
Oda, it was excellent speaking to you. I have one question before yeah. we go, right? Mm-hmm. So we've been working together for a long time now. Any memorable experiences? Hmm, memorable experience. There may not have been any, which I'm okay with. I have a glass of wine here, just in case you say that. <laughs> uh, I, I need to think about this, actually. Uh, I think the most memorable one was actually the the one before last session when we had to talk about my insecurities, because I really didn't want to do this. I, I really just wanted to focus on the thesis, and it's something that I felt very uncomfortable doing, because I just didn't want to say that I didn't feel good enough. Mm-hmm. And it's something that um, you wanted to do, and I, I was thinking in the back of my mind, okay, Michael wants to do it, so it must be important. But I, uh, it was really one of, uh, of the, uh, at the same time, painful and at the same time good. So it was a bit cathartic for me, because it's something that I ha- I've had in me for quite some time. But I think had I not gone through that, it would have been, it would have been quite a, I was actually shaking when we were having that, that, um, that uh, session because I was just thinking about all the things that I've had heard all my life and how that would, they would come back and, and just be right in front of me when I'm trying to, to get this chance of my lifetime. And um, I, I think that at that time, you were a bit more than my mentor. So it was one time when oh, you were Oh, you called me uh, your friend. That's not good. <laughs> I said just that one time, and one I think time, at that time one. I didn't. I didn't need a mentor at that time. I just needed, I just needed somebody to believe in me, and it was very important for me that to have that exception for once, to just not be uh, in a in a very technical setting, but actually just be able to say I don't think I'm good enough, and you telling me that you know it's not as scary as you think it is, and sometimes and we need you, to have and, these weak and, moments. And now that you made it, you understand you are good enough, right? <laughs> yes. Well, you're good enough and you believe that you deserve to be here, right? Yes. Okay, good. Look, I knew the session, that particular session would be intense. I also know I have a really intense personality so I had to, you know, take my foot off the accelerator a little bit. But I think that session was important because, you know, I always tell people it's not about how good you are. It's not about your technical skills, about how you feel about your skills that matters. Because if you feel good about yourself, you project that personality, right? Mm-hmm. And that's ultimately what people see. So let's wrap up here, Oda. Thank you so much. I enjoyed everything. Obviously, we'll always be in touch. So I'm looking forward mm-hmm. to hearing about your exploits through Europe. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let me know if you want to discuss anything or you know you want advice on how to prepare for brain stimulus shock and I'll help you. Okay. Thank you so much. We will be in touch, right? Okay, thanks so much, Michael. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our insider content is to join the list on marketingsavestheworld.com or firmsconsulting.com. Just remember that Bill Madisoni's memoir and documentary, the 20-episode documentary, and his memoir is going to be released worldwide soon. As far as we know, it is extremely rare for a former McKinsey and BCG partner to publish the memoir. The special pricing that we will offer will only be offered for a limited time and will be only offered to people who subscribe to that email list.
It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.